Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Pray with me this morning. Come on. Okay. I don't hear me. Father, we do pray that uh, you would do something in our lives today. We don't want this to be just another Sunday that we came out here just by rote or tradition, but we want you to do something real in our lives today. I pray you prepare every heart in here. You know the soil of each heart and what it needs. And I pray your Holy Spirit would find fruit there, that you would be able to do something in us that would change us for the rest of our lives. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever heard the name... Igor Sigorsky. Back in 1939, he was the guy who perfected the concept of the cricket. No, the concept of the helicopter. The interesting thing is, as he built it, where you put the blades on top of the rotor, you had just one nut that held everything together. And when you installed that nut, you had to make sure that it was on good and tight. Because if that nut came off, your blades would sail off and you would crash. And so when they built it, one of Sigorsky's mechanics was overheard to say, we better pray to Jesus that that nut keeps holding. Because of that, it actually came to be called the Jesus Nut. And you thought that's just what people called us. In Wikipedia, it came to be an encyclopedic term that you can look up when you get home. The Jesus nut. Wikipedia says, In terms of engineering, the concept of the Jesus nut has widened to include any single component of a system whose failure would cause a catastrophe of the entire system. That's like Jesus, isn't it? He's the only one who has the ability to hold the most important part of life together. And the most important part of life is our being connected to God. We're in the words of 1 John 5.11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. Who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And depending on whether you do have that life or not will determine the way that you exit this world. It's always fascinated me the last words that someone utters when they die. I even have a book in my library entitled Last Words of Saints and Sinners. Now, 
our first words are all pretty much the same. It may be goo-goo or gaga, but they all sound pretty much alike. However, I think that people's last words are incredibly significant. As a person exits this world, it is, on, it is what is on their hearts that makes its way out of their mouths. And it all depends on how that person lived their life. You see, how you die will depend upon how you lived. If you truly lived a Christ-honoring life, you will die well no matter what the circumstance may be. Look at verse 1 with me. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The account of David's life has been one of the greatest stories ever told. From the day that Samuel visited him as a boy in Bethlehem, we have followed his extraordinary accomplishments of his life, as well as the terrible failures that he also endured. We have seen the impressive goodness of this king, as well as the terrible wickedness into which he fell. And so what would the last words of such a man be? As I said earlier, last words can be very telling. I've compiled a list of the last words of a few people for your consideration. Drummer Buddy Rich died after surgery in 1987. As he was being prepped for surgery, a nurse asked him, Is there anything you can't take? Rich replied, Yeah, country music. Murderer James Rogers was put in front of a firing squad and asked if he had any last words. His were, Bring me a bulletproof vest. Convicted murderer Thomas J. Grasso used his last words to complain about his last meal. He said, I did not get my SpaghettiOs. I got spaghetti. I want the press to know this. Surgeon Joseph Henry Green was checking his own pulse as he was lay dying. His last word was stopped. <laughs> Some last words aren't so humorous, though. David Hume, the well-known Scottish author and atheist, as he lay dying, his parting words were, I am in the flames. Voltaire, the French infidel, last words were, Christ, O Jesus Christ, I shall go to hell. It is recorded he cried all night like that in agony. The nurse who attended Voltaire said, For all the money in Europe, I will never attend to the bedside of another unbeliever. Even Mahatma Gandhi, who people still look up to today for spiritual direction, had this to say as he lay dying. My days are numbered. For the first time in 50 years, I am in the mire of despond. Darkness is all around me, and I can see no light. Of course, the most famous last words came from Jesus. It was seven statements that were uttered from the cross. The first was, Father, forgive them, all the way to, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. And so we read in verse 1, now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, 
and the sweet psalmist of Israel. These last words of David are the words that really sum up his life. Here in David's own words is the key to understanding the key to this great king. Now these aren't his final, final words. We get those in 1 Kings chapter 2 in a conversation that he has with his son Solomon. But these are his last prophetic words inspired from the Lord. Here in the last two chapters of 2 Samuel, we are given his last words, the names of his greatest soldiers, and next chapter, the sad account of his sin of numbering the people. This is what we could call David's swan song. Have you ever heard that term, the swan song? There was a legend that right before a swan would die, that his life would come all together in one final song, and it came to be applied to people's last words. I think the swan song of Jesus would be John chapter 17. That's the chapter which contains his high priestly prayer for his disciples all the way down to us. I think the Apostle Paul's swan song would be 2 Timothy 4, where he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. But whether we are given the opportunity to utter last words on the day of our own swan song, the only thing that will matter is whether we have embraced that life that only Christ can give. Verse 2, please. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. The God of the Bible speaks, and he speaks through human agents. Here David asserts that he is such an agent. During the, time of, the times of inspiration, the Spirit of the Lord was on his breath. It was the Lord who spoke through David by placing his words on David's tongue. In this context, the Word of God and the Spirit of God cannot be separated, any more than the words that I speak cannot be separated from my breath. And we need both the Spirit and the Word. You can't separate the two. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones here. He writes, Nothing is more dangerous than to put a wedge between the Word and the Spirit, to emphasize either one at the expense of the other. It is the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit upon the Word, and the Spirit in us as we read the Word. Of course, the Bible and its Spirit's inspiration has long come under attack as just being another religious book. Sure, it has some pithy sayings and some good advice, but it's really nothing more than that. In a 2014 episode of Larry King, it featured a panel of guests discussing the future of religion in America. Two of the guests there voiced their views on the Bible. When asked if the Bible is reputable, the atheist scientist Lawrence Krauss said, the Bible was written basically before people knew anything. Michael Beckwith, a self-proclaimed New Thought minister, added, The Bible to me is an evolution of human consciousness. We don't call it the Word of God. We call it people who were inspired by the presence of God. 
Now, he may believe that. But that's not what the Bible declares concerning itself. 2 Peter 1.19 But we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Well, what is it? It says, prophecy, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So according to Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that pretty much describes verse 2 in our text. It was the Spirit of God that moved upon David to write the words that he wrote. And what did God say to David? Verse 3 says, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. God says a ruler must be just, or we could say they must be righteous. And isn't that what we should all ascribe to be? Whether we are ruling over a country, a workplace, a family, or just our own individual lives, we should all want to be just and righteous in our dealings. How do you do that? Here is how a just life plays itself out. I find myself in a circumstance and I ask myself, what does the Bible tell me to do in this circumstance? And then when I do it, I can have the confidence that was the just and the righteous thing to do. If we, draw, if we draw our definitions of right and wrong and good and bad from the pages of Scripture, that is how we will become a just person. That is how we will lead a just life. Now such a ruler is likened to the brilliance of the sun that's rising on a cloudless morning. His rule is like the sun's warmth joined with rain, bringing forth abundant and lush growth. And so too... If we are just and righteous, we can also be assured of lush and abundant growth as we are transformed into the image of Christ. Verse 5, please. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. David here, at the end of his life, admits, I wasn't always just. My household isn't where I wish that it was and know that it should be. I didn't always operate in the fear and the obedience of the Lord. But praise the Lord for the next word there in verse 5. It's the word yet. And then the word that follows that, he, referring to God. Yet he. David honestly admits, I failed and sometimes I failed in epic ways. Yet the Lord has made with me an everlasting covenant. And so David comes to the end of his life, and he is conscious that sometimes he has failed. 
but he is even more conscious of how gracious and faithful God has been to him to the very end of his days. Even though David realizes and admits that his house is not altogether, God still showed him mercy and blessed his life. Now, this section concludes the reflection on the alternative offered to the hope that David gives in his last words. It speaks of the rebellious who are like thorns. They are the opposite and the opponents of righteousness and the fear of God. Like thorns, they are both dangerous and useless, and so they must be dealt with accordingly. Hebrews 6 tells us that if a field just yields thorns, it is worthless and ends up in danger of just being burned. And what is true of a field is also true of an unrepentant life. One commentator adds this insight. The picture of the enemies of God and of his king and the judgment that will fall on them is an unavoidable aspect of the promise of a righteous ruler who will rule in the fear of God. Their proper and expected end is only destruction. Now, a little background before we go any further on to verse 8. Of the 37 men who made up David's rear guard, there were three that made that were called David's chief men. They were like his three musketeers. They were the mighty of the mightiest, the strong of the strongest. These three exceptional heroes have certainly earned the designation mighty men. Their accomplishments were in the never-to-be-forgotten category. The first mention was Josheb Bas Shebeth. Once we are told, he killed 800 men with a spear. The second man that formed that trio was a man by the name of Eliezer, the son of Dodo or Dudu. Either way you pronounce it, you know he got made fun of in the third grade. So it's probably a good thing that Eliezer was a tough and skillful fighter. Once we are told when David and Eliezer were together, they defied the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, as you might expect, got angry and attacked. It would seem that Eliezer and David stood alone and fought off the Philistines. They fought through the morning and the afternoon until Eliezer's hand became so cramped it was frozen to the sword. But through his bravery, they won a great battle. The third man that formed that trio was a man by the name of Shema. He, too, had his scars in battle. Once we are told the Philistines attacked a lentil field in order to scavenge Israel's food supply. And once again, as sometimes was their custom, the Israeli soldiers disappeared from the fight. And Shema was left alone in the middle of that field. But he did not give an inch. He fought throughout the day. And the Philistines paid for the battle with their blood. And through him also... It says God gained a great victory. So for the remainder of our time this morning, let's take a closer look at each one of these men's individual accomplishments. Look at verse 8 with me. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had, Josheb, Bathshebeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was also called Adino the Esnite because he killed 800 men at one time. We aren't given a whole lot of information 
about the first guy. His name was Josheb Bas Shebeth. He was also known as Adino, which makes him the first Italian mentioned in the Bible. Erase that. Maybe they changed his name to Adino because it was a lot easier to say. And that's important. Because if in the midst of a raging battle you are yelling out, Hey, Joseph Bashabeth, watch out for that arrow. I mean, he'd be dead by the time he finished saying his name. We see that he killed 800 men. That's all we really know about him. About this extraordinary feat of courage, skill, and strength. We are talking about a supernatural event here. This isn't some fiction movie where a weapon from the 21st century lands in his hands and he just mows down people left and right. This speaks of swords and spears and hand-to-hand combat. See, back then there were no drones and sniper rifles. Warfare back then was extremely up close and personal. So this event is supernatural in the same way that God gave Samson a supernatural ability to kill the Philistines. Look at verse 9 with me. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, one of the three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. It is tantalizing to have no more detail than that about Eliezer and how he single-handedly struck down a huge number of Philistines. It was clearly a memorable display of strength and audacity. As we will see, the Bible focuses dramatically on Eliezer's sword-wielding hand. It grew weary, but he gripped his sword and would not let go of its blood-splattered, vice-like grip until the job was done. But he could not have won the victory without the sword. And neither can we. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And like that, one thing we must do if we want to be mighty women and men of God is to be one whose hand cleaves to the sword. Eliezer's hand was so tightly held around the sword that it molded around it. Now allow me to ask you, are you wearing your Bibles out? I hope so. To victoriously live the Christian life, you must be in the Word consistently and continuously. You cannot grow unless you're taking a consistent Bible teaching and Bible study. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Your faith grows stronger as you take in the nutrients and spiritual calories of the meat of the Word of God. So, are we familiar enough with our own weapon? There is an answer in the Word of God for every situation you will ever face in life. But if we haven't spent time in the Word, we won't know those answers when we need them. 
Hebrews 5 says this, Solid food is for the mature who by sporadic use. Now that's not what it says, is it? It doesn't say sporadic or occasional use. It says by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now in Satan's temptation of Jesus in the desert, each time Jesus met the attack of the enemy with the word of God. And we should, as Christians, know our Bible so well that when attacked by the enemy, we can say, Thus saith the Lord. The Bible says this, or the Bible says that. And be able to answer any temptation or attack of the enemy with the Word of God. And we should have that to be such a characteristic of our daily lives that the Word of God becomes part of us. It's like the sword in Eliezer's hand. It becomes a literal extension of who we are. We are so used to using it on a daily basis that raising it is as natural as raising our physical arm. Verse 11, please. And after him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. Then the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. And so once again, you see Israel's perennial enemy, the Philistines, again harass the people of God. In this instance, they had their eyes on a crop in a particular field, a plot of ground that were full of lentils. Now the Philistines came in sufficient numbers and with enough aggression to cause the locals to flee for their lives. It looked as though the bumper crop would be lost to the Philistines and it would have been very easy for them to steal it. But they had not counted on Shema, the lone defender of the bean field. If he would have been a superhero, instead of an S, there would have been a big bean on his shirt, I think. And so we see the next prerequisite to be used by God as seen in Shema's life is faithfulness and service. Shema's job was to guard the beans. When the Philistines attacked, everyone ran for their lives, not Shema. He said, I have a job to do. Even if I die, I'm going to guard these beans. And because he was faithful in that service, he became a mighty man of God. This is a man of principle. He doesn't care if he's guarding gold, beans, or dirt clods. That field belongs to God and to God's people. And I'm not going to give that up without a fight, even if it costs me my very life. With people like this man, the issue isn't the value of what they're entrusted with. The issue is right and wrong. Now you may have read that before and never really stopped to notice it, but today I want us to stop for a minute and notice it. It doesn't sound like all that much, does it? What did you do in your service to the Lord? I'm the defender of the bean field. But maybe we should keep in mind that what he did, did get mentioned in the Bible. Just because someone isn't under the bright lights does not mean that they are insignificant. But to Israel who needed the food, the defender of the bean field was a pretty important job. 
Likewise, you may think that your gift or contribution isn't all that important either. But it is vital to the church and to the greater kingdom for us to operate at peak efficiency. How we all need what you do to do what you do with all your heart as unto the Lord. What has the Lord given you to do? Maybe your job is to change diapers in the nursery or to teach Sunday school or to just help around the church when the need arises or to silently and privately meet the needs of people that the Lord may bring into your path. In the words of that old commercial, just do it. Even if you were the only one who was being faithful, stand your ground even if everyone else splits. Be like Shema, and until the king releases you, stick to your job. Paul says it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Jesus said the one who is faithful in small things will be made ruler over great things. Do not expect God to do any greater thing in your life if you are not being faithful to what he has placed in front of you this very Sunday morning. This text is searching us all today, I think. Have we stood our ground? Have we kept our commitment? Everybody ran except Shema. They felt like they were no match for the Philistines. Shema was all alone, so it appeared, in the middle of a lentil patch ready to defend it. I think it would be accurate to say he was in the middle of a mess. How many times have you found yourself in the middle of something? The middle of a financial crisis, the middle of a health crisis, the middle of a job crisis, the middle of a family crisis. In other words, how many times have you found yourself in the middle of a mess with nowhere to go, feeling completely abandoned? Well, I have good news for you this morning. I've always found that the Lord is always in the middle of whatever mess I find myself in if I will but turn to Him. He promises to always give me the strength that I need. If we will stand and fight, we will always see the salvation of the Lord. As we close, we have however passed over the most important words in the description of David's most outstanding three champions. We are told in verse 10 and 12 that the Lord brought about a great victory. That reminds us that these great accomplishments by Joseph, Bathshebeth, Eliezer, and Shema were more than they seemed. They may have looked like outstanding feats of human strength, ingenuity, and courage, but they were more than that. They were saving acts of God Almighty. The Lord gave the might, skill, and daring by which each of these deeds were accomplished. The point is, the greatness and importance of what really happened lies in what the Lord was doing. And likewise, when our achievements and our activities serve the kingdom of God, it's only then that they have any kind of lasting value. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But if we cling to the sword and stand our ground, 
We will never be ashamed of that life or our last words. And Father, only you know where we are this morning. I know there are people here going through terrible, terrible temptations and trials and sicknesses. There are maybe people in here, Lord, that don't even know you. And Father, there are those in here, Lord, who are trying their hardest, but their hands are hanging low, and they need an encouraging word. Father, the amazing thing is your Holy Spirit can do all those things. And so I pray, Father, that you would just do that. Lord, that you would make us willing to do whatever we have to do, Father, to get in that place to where your Holy Spirit can do the work that it wants to do. And where we're not willing, Lord, make us willing to be willing. For we need you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.